So Jay, given the number of mutants and teams in the UK, I'm surprised the Queen doesn't make more cameos. Ah, she turns up now and again, Miles. She got a low-key crush on Gambit a couple years ago, even. Oh, and then he got declared an official enemy of the Crown. For flirting with the Queen? What? No, for stealing stuff. Like what? Excalibur. The team? The sword. How do you manage that? Got knighted. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 175 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Welcome back, Miles. Thank you. Yes, I, I was in uh, Florida, and it was it was very warm. Yeah, how'd that go? Uh, it was actually really nice. So I hadn't been to Disney World since I was a kid. I mean, we both grew up in Florida, of course, so I used to go there semi-regularly when I was little. I mean, that, that growing, growing up in Florida does not necessarily mean going to Disney World semi-regularly. I, I can state that with a fair degree of first-hand knowledge. True, true. Well, my family did. Um, they found ways to do it very, very frugally. So I, I remember going there with lots of bags of, of goldfish crackers and stuff. I mean, this time we just spent all of our money and then some, but that's okay. Credit cards are great. But Disney was cool. Uh, being at Epcot specifically as a grown-up and being able to drink different kinds of booze in every little tiny country, a uh, definite improvement. I mean, Epcot was always my favorite. I think now it's even more my favorite. Oh, you never snuck it in as a kid? Uh, again, we had the goldfish crackers. We tend not to have, I don't know, hooch. Man, come on, you gotta get with the program. I, I'm making I'm making my childhood trips to Epcot sound way more larcenous than they actually were. Like, all I really remember is, is going on the troll ride, which doesn't exist anymore. I know, they changed the uh, Norway troll ride to Frozen, which I actually didn't go on because the line was way too long, but also there. because I would have been angry that, that, that Odin didn't yell at you when you first started it. I, I mean, I'm guessing Odin doesn't. Right, that was great. That was like half the point of going to Epcot along with like gazing in horror at the weird like sanitized appropriation. I don't know. It's Epcot is a strange place. It is a strange place, but I still love it a lot. But um, anyway, yeah, how, how have you been while I was away? You did an interview with Ed Pisker. I, I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm going to very soon. I did. It was very awesome. I suspect you will enjoy it. Um, Ed is a rad dude. That, that will have been up for a week by the time this goes up. I am actually going to put that together and get it up tonight as soon as we finish recording. It was great. He is, I'm, I'm very, very excited about X-Men Grand Design. Um, he sent us preview PDFs of the first, first couple issues, which, which I will pass along to you. Ooh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's some rad stuff. I, I think you will enjoy it tremendously. Excellent. I'm a little nervous though, because basically what our podcast does, but much more concise. It's not. And actually, that's something that Ed and I covered because you know how people are always trying to make us fight on Twitter? <laughs> Like, we feel fairly strongly that, that we present complementary rather than competing viewpoints on X-Men. Um, his is, is definitely a streamlining of it, while ours is basically an increased granularization. So it, it really depends on what you're looking for and what you're after. I suspect people who haven't found what they're looking for in our podcast will love Grand Design and vice versa, and that there will also be a lot of crossover fans. Excellent. Well, one thing that I suspect Grand Design will not cover is what we're going to be talking about in this episode. You never know. I suppose. So we are covering a series today called X-Men True Friends, although it should probably be more accurately called Excalibur True Friends because it's about Excalibur stuff. You know what I think it should be called? I think it should be called The Counterintuitively Heterosexual Crossheim Adventures of Kitty Pride. It is surprisingly straight for a story that features Kitty Pride and to a lesser degree Rachel Summers as its main characters. I'm just saying... Dropped through time, and it's called True Friends. Like, it might as well be called X-Men Gal Pals. 
Okay, henceforth, we should probably refer to this story as X-Men Gal Pals. Correct. Uh, before we dive in, we should probably do a little bit of background, but thankfully we don't need very much for this, at least for the storyline. But as far as the comic itself, well, there's a story there. So this takes place somewhere between Excalibur number 35 and 42. All we know for sure is that it's after Kitty has reunited with the rest of the team following Girls' School from Heck. And we do know that she at least knows the X-Men are alive. Now, that doesn't help us that much because as we found out in Excalibur number 41... Excalibur had apparently known that for a while and just hadn't really mentioned it on panel for a number of issues. Or had been in a weird sort of denial about it. It's hard to say. It's very ambiguous. I suppose that's one of the downsides of extended fill-in runs. But anyway, that would make you think that this comic came out in the vicinity of 1991, right? Like where we've been covering things. But when did it actually come out, Miles? Because I suspect that there's a twist coming. It actually came out in 1999. So, I mean, the original plan was that it was going to be a couple of back-to-back Excalibur special editions in 1990. Never happened. 1999 is a ridiculous year. So I guess what happened, there are various rumors I haven't found anything confirmed, is that Marvel didn't want to keep doing graphic novels. They didn't want to keep doing special editions. And indeed, we will see Excalibur move toward the traditional annual model around this time. So the whole series got shelved. About half the art was done, I think all the writing was done, but in 1999, Rick Leonardi finally picked the pencils back up and Marvel actually released it as three 32-page issues. Now, this is written by Chris Claremont and, as Miles mentioned, drawn by Rick Leonardi, the poor man's Alan Davis, which is no offense to Leonardi, he's great, he's just also the poor man's Alan Davis. (laughs) I mean, it's going to be an uneven comparison when you're putting anybody in the same sentence as Alan Davis. That's just inevitable. I feel like it's an entirely valid description, and it sums up his art style pretty well, at least relative to what we'd be expecting out of Excalibur. And it's yet another Nazi story, because apparently that's what Excalibur fucking does on their summer vacations. We just can't get away from Nazis in our show or in real life. I was expecting far fewer Nazis in my future. We should have chosen a different comic if we wanted escapism out of this. (laughs) I I think X-Men's probably the wrong direction to look for escapism in general. Right, what's something fun and maybe in space with unicorns? House? No, Power Pack's really dark. I don't know. I'm sure there's some good example out there. Well, thankfully, this is a lot less brutal than Excalibur Weird War 3. I'm still kind of reeling from that one. I know a couple listeners were as well. So we should say there are Nazis in this, but they're more just like, you know comic booky mustache twirling villain Nazis. Still Nazis, don't get me wrong, but there's less vivisection. Okay, look, that is a very low bar that you're setting because Weird War 3 was exceptionally graphic. It really was. Like, when we were covering it, I didn't realize I was just taking all these notes and then we were talking about it. And after the fact, I'm like, should we have even talked about that? I mean, it exists and thus is worth discussing with necessary declaimers. That's something I feel fairly strongly about. If it's published material that someone is likely to encounter, if it exists as an artifact, it's probably worth addressing in addressing the historical scope of the comics that we're covering on this show. Well, that principle being the case, let's talk about X-Men True Friends. Um, don't you mean X-Men Gal Pals? Oh, I absolutely do. X-Men Gal Pals. So, X-Men Gal Pals number one opens, well, actually it opens with a flash forward, but we're first going to talk about Trad Knight at a rural Scottish inn as Kitty dances and flirts with a sexy mustache man named Dougal. All right, so I gotta say, 
table dancing aside, this is at least roughly consistent with what I remember from trad nights when I used to go to them in Ireland. Yeah, I remember I went with you and your family once, and it was really nice. There were, like, people with old-timey instruments, and everybody was very excited, and there was... They weren't particularly old-timey instruments. They're just instruments that have existed for a long time and are also modern instruments, like violins. Dude, it's not... I don't know. I listen to a lot of metal. If if it doesn't plug into something, then it just seems old-timey to me, I guess. You are a fucking Philistine. (laughs) That may be true. But it's a nice scene. It's really fun, and Kitty's having a good time. Until... Until a sullen and sexy Rachel Summers saunters in dressed in tight black leather, turning every head in the place. Except for the one she's there for. See, that's the thing, and that's the main thing that surprised me about X-Men True Friends. We, We touched on this earlier. It's Kitty Pride and Rachel Summers. I mean, they are canonical, according to Chris Claremont. Like, and there's just nothing between them. There's not even the usual subtext we see in this story. So... I'm going to go ahead and spoil something massive and say Rachel is possessed and off panel for most of this story. And I assume that's what it takes to keep their hands off each other. That's probably true. But Kitty is jealous. I mean, we've seen that jealous slash into relationship she has with Rachel before on Excalibur. And she phases outside sulking. Darn her. Darn her. Darn her. How does she do it? Just walk into a room and grab every guy in the place. She isn't even trying to. Kitty, it's not a guy she's trying to grab. But Kitty, Kitty will not be assuaged by what we know to be the voice of reason. So she puts on her flight jacket over her costume, phases out of her civilian dress-up clothes, and goes for a walk to a nearby stone circle. And Rachel comes to check in, because Rachel's a good friend slash whatever, um, in her usual subtle fashion, with a burning firebird filling up the sky around her. Yeah, look... Rachel Summers is about as subtle as, like, a meteor shower, and um, she is she is here. They're both here, and incidentally, it turns out, on vacation. Kitty needed a break, and Excalibur insisted that she be sent with some kind of chaperone because she's had a rough time of it. So I assume this is shortly after Girls' School, school from Heck. Rachel, meanwhile, is frustrated because she's read the jealousy from Kitty's mind, and obviously there is some miscommunication going on on multiple levels here. And they bicker and bicker. Kitty talks about how it seems like she's the only one who's expected to keep her emotions under control. Rachel talks about, hey, by the way, remember how I come from a horrible future where I watched everybody I love die? And it just turns into a bigger and bigger fight. And of course, when you have a couple getting into a fight and one of them is a demigod, that can get a little weird. So the Phoenix energy flares up and it interacts with something in the stone circle and then Dr. Druid appears. No, no, that's not true. I wish Dr. Druid appeared. I have a lot of notes in here that are what I wished had happened rather than what actually happened, which may explain the long rocketeer digression around issue two. It's true. We don't have Dr. Anthony Druid. Instead, we have some red-robed cultists sacrificing a girl, like stabbing her right in the heart. That's not what you would expect when you're having a lover's quarrel. As mystic flashbacks go, this is really trite. It's also very surprising. At this point in the story, things are quite confusing. And spoiler, they're going to stay a little confusing, but you know, less so as it goes. However, this part uh, is not an example of us being enlightened because as Kitty runs away, she ends up almost getting run off the road by a car. Her phasing suddenly doesn't work, and so she tumbles down the cliff. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, not just any car. An uncharacteristically old-timey car, although she does not comment on the fact at the time. This is going to be relevant real shortly. 
Well, I think part of why she doesn't comment on it is because the next thing she sees is a river of blood with a scary monster-looking old lady washing clothes in it and singing creepy songs. Are you fucking kidding? She's an Excalibur. That's like Tuesday. Good point. Well, I personally was creeped out despite having read so many dozens of issues of Excalibur, and Kitty's at least creeped out enough to pass out. What's creepy? It's a nice old lady who does the laundry and sings to herself while she does. River of blood, Jay. So it's really dirty laundry. She's not very good at doing laundry, is she? No, or she's very good at it. Obviously, the blood's not in the clothing. Well, I suppose that's true. What we also see is that the clothing she's washing is riddled with bullets, and it's a jacket that looks a lot like the one Kitty's wearing. I'm sure that has no significance. Let's ignore it immediately. Nah, it's fine. So Kitty does ignore it by passing out, and she wakes up next in an old-timey bedroom where she falls immediately out of bed and is interrupted by a young girl named Lilibet. And a handsome young man named Laird Alistair Kinross, who comes to see if things are okay. So... There's a lot going on here, but first of all, chronologically, I'm going to go back. I mean, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, Kitty's fallen back through time to 1936. She won't pick up on this for a while. This should be Maura McTaggart's dad. Or would it be her grandfather? We do know that Kinross is the family that Moira comes from. McTaggart is the name of her terrible ex-husband. It should be her dad, because chronologically, Moira would be, based on the age she is at the beginning of X-Men, she'd be our parents' age or a little bit older. Okay, that that makes sense then. But this is just one of many things that's not fully commented on, unfortunately. Yeah, it's never developed, and um, there's a lot that's just never developed in this. Well, one thing that isn't mentioned is that Alistair, you know, the name of one of the other main characters of Excalibur, no relation first name-wise either. Look, first of all, that's not how, how names work. Second, there what, what I have learned from Excalibur is that there are two men's names in Scotland, and they are Alistair and Di. No one else. That seems entirely reasonable. Alistair, as far as I can tell, has two defining characteristics. One is that he's a dude roughly Kitty's age. And the second is that he's the character in this story who most closely resembles Rachel Summers. Ah, and thus the immediate flirtation, as Kitty says. Just like in the storybooks, chances are a kiss would have done the trick. Silly me for not thinking to give that one a try. Okay, Alistair also has... The worst fucking phonetic accent. I'm going to say this is worse than Moira McTaggart's accent. There were so many apostrophes. So many. You could build an entire sentence just out of those apostrophes. It's quite a read. It is It is quite, it's a, it's a thing. It's, there's some stuff. There are words that, it's so bad, you guys. I cannot handle his dialogue. But he does seem to have a very good heart, and he's nice to Kitty, and he's respectful, so at least I'll give him those things. He is also the Laird Kinross, which means this is his castle. Lilibet is his little cousin of some sort and the housekeeper who is very, very proper and horrified by the state of Kitty's clothing when she came in is his housekeeper and she dresses Kitty up properly in old-timey clothing. Kitty has still not figured out that she's fallen back through time, so she assumes that everyone here is just kind of weird and anachronistic. Even when Alistair tries calling the hotel that Kitty was staying at with Rachel to see if they know where Rachel is using an old-timey phone amid all of the antiques of his old-timey house, and Kitty's just like, oh, antiques, Nightcrawler would love this stuff. Okay, to be fair, Kitty's time in the UK has been spent primarily with the Braddocks and Moira McTaggart. Like, she, she does not have a sense of how modern people, modern, normal, human, not weirdo people live. That's probably true, but still, come on, Kitty, you're smarter than this. You've done so much time travel. That's kind of been a thing with you, specifically. Well, look, she thinks that everything's back to normal. She's taken a blow to the head. She's, 
I don't know, half drowned in a river of blood. I, I don't know, man. There's a lot that doesn't make sense. You just kind of have to take it as read and keep barreling onward. Well, Kitty does barrel onward with her story, and when Lilibet hears Kitty mention the scary washer lady in the River of Blood, she kind of freaks out. This is apparently the Bania, who is a mythological figure in Scotland who washes the clothes of people who are destined to die. Kitty doesn't buy it, which makes me really wonder. Kitty has seen so much supernatural stuff. Like, this keeps coming up in the Marvel Universe, and I'd imagine other superhero universes as well. Like, all of these gods and monsters are real, and yet you still have skeptics. Now, I'm a skeptic in real life, but if I lived in the Marvel Universe, I would basically believe anything. She's season one through seven, Dana Scully. Yeah, okay. I'll buy that. So I was at karaoke last night, and you know how you can, like, enter whatever name you want when you turn in your song? There was a lady who put her name in as Dana Scully, and it made me happy every single time she came up. Did you fall madly in love with her? Eh, only a little. But yeah, this Bania, so that's spelled B-E-A-N space N-I-G-H-E. Apparently that's actually very similar to the spelling of Banshee, which is B-E-A-N space S-I-D-H-E, like, you know, the she, the, the fancy fairies. But the way it's spelled, I just read it as Beanie and I giggled and now I can't stop reading it as Beanie. Well, and all of these are awkward transliterations, but I feel like we should mention that Alistair is, is, is a super, he's like, he's like someone just sort of checked off generic love interests and dropped him in. I'm really torn because on the one hand, Alistair is immensely generic and somewhat boring, but he's just so good-hearted about it, and that really does come through. Like, I completely believe that his intentions are amazing and his follow-through tends to be great. Like, he's a good dude. There's just nothing to him. I don't know. He's, he turns out later to be kind of an obnoxious traditionalist, so I'm going to assume that he's got, like, this whole secret ultra-conservative agenda going. That could be it. That could be it. Like, and then maybe he's hyper-classist, too. Like, if Kitty had actually stayed around, he would have turned out to be pretty terrible. That could be. Uh, but the next step on this agenda, conservative and classist, or uh, hopefully otherwise, is that he's going to take Kitty to go see their neighbor, Lady Windermere. Wait, would you, Miles, Miles, would you say that he likes Lady Windermere? Uh, I mean, he doesn't seem to. So, so you wouldn't say that he is, for instance, fanatical about her? Is this one of those things where we measured in different things in college? You wouldn't maybe perchance describe him as as her her fan, just per se. Uh, no, no, I, I don't think so. But the point is, there's an okay. Look, there's an Oscar Wilde play called Lady Windermere's Fan. That's all. That's the entire thing. Although, I will say that I was really expecting there to be some kind of Jean Grey connection based on that, because I'm not actually going to go into this. And I was disappointed that there were not more Oscar Wilde references. And Chris Claremont, if you are if you are listening, this is me giving you a stern look. Jay Edidin, disappointed by lack of Oscar Wilde references. That's DM. Yeah, that's basically just my life in, in summary. <laughs> Resting state. Well, they're hoping that this Lady Windermere, uh, who may or may not have fans, will know where Rachel is because she sort of runs things socially and politically around here, so presumably she'd have those connections. They mount up on some horses. Kitty still hasn't figured out it's the 30s, mind you. She just thinks they like horses. And they head off to her door. Again, she hangs out with the Braddocks, who are like the epitome of eccentric royalty. Well, once they get there, the stereotypical palooka at the gate plays dumb at their description of Rachel, but clearly has a spark of recognition. This is not lost on Kitty. However, any potential confrontation is immediately disrupted by Nazis. God damn it, there are Nazis saluting in the driveway. Like, I, I, we're not trying to do stories over and over that have Nazis as the antagonists. Listeners, this is not deliberate. They just keep showing up. Okay, it's fine that we're doing stories with Nazis as the antagonists. Fuck Nazis. Nazis are terrible. But um, 
they're a little bit stock antagonisty, and and they they this does definitely emphasize how often they're used that way in Excalibur. It's true. Well, Alistair says as they notice the Nazis, the Lady Windermere actually met with Adolf Hitler recently. So Kitty finally gets a clue and asks what year it is. Sure enough, nineteen thirty six, smack between World War One and World War Two. Well, and right during the specific era, during the rise of Hitler, when fascism was all the rage among the upper classes in, say, Britain and America. I gotta give Claremont some credit. He's definitely couching this in a great many details of actual history. I don't think all writers would. Yeah, you can you can go through names and get some some actually fairly good historical hooks about Nazi sympathizers in Britain from earlier early scenes involving Lady Windermere. But Kitty having discovered that it's 1936, freaks the hell out. And fortunately, handsome McFlirty Pants decides that that's probably fine and no big deal. And, you know, ladies and Nazis and whatever. Aye, all this fresh Highland air. Probably a bit much for a city girl from someplace like Chicago. Some say it's as intoxicating as our Scots whiskey. No call for tears, though, or to be frightened. I'm by your side for as long as there's need. He's so romantic. so much. <laughs> and in fact, Alistair insists on going with Kitty to look for Rachel, leaving a frustrated Lilibet to stay behind, presumably, where it's safe. As for why Lilibet's frustrated, Alistair mentions she's having some trouble with her family, with her uncle having bad intentions. So this is foreshadowing, but if you hadn't already read the story, or if you weren't already pretty familiar with what was going on in British politics at the time, you would not catch it. My first time through, didn't even remotely catch it. I mean, you didn't figure out what Lilibet is short for? No, no, I've never heard anyone called Lilibet. Okay. Well, anyway, so Alistair and Kitty head through some nearby caves into Lady Windermere's castle, and suddenly they see a patrol of guards, so Kitty phases them away to, apparently, the stone circle that she saw back in the present day. Now, boyfriend Von Supportive Kisses freaks out at what just happened, but Kitty explains. It's cool. I'm a mutant. I've got superpowers. You cool? You cool. So they're cool with that. Also, they don't really comment on the fact that they've just landed in this stone circle. But that's the thing. And it's also underground now. It is. And I'm guessing it must have been moved outside in the present day. This part is never really explained. Unstable molecules. Erosion. Let's just call it unstable molecules. Dr. Druid. Perfect. So they hide as a couple of unexpected characters show up. A man named Herr Geist, who I believe we'll see in Wolverine very briefly later, but also Baron Wolfgang von Strucker. Ew. That's right, it's the dad of Fenris who wields the mighty Satan Claw, although he doesn't have it in this story, unfortunately. Can I talk about Fenris for a second? Because I am actually finally um, almost caught up on Gifted. Oh, okay, I still need to. Okay, so they're teasing that Fenris might exist. And I'm just going to say I'm going to be, because, man, the Gifted Writers tweeted to us, so obviously one of them at least listens to us. And I'm just going to say I'm going to be so deeply disappointed if Fenris is not introduced on the back of a yacht drinking champagne from a bottle and hunting an endangered species. They should be extra than extra. That's right, it's Fenris. They are mainly defined by being incredibly awful. So I say go with it. Turn that shit up to 11. No, they've, they've, they've got to be hysterically, cinematically, cartoonishly terrible. Like, if they're not speaking in bad, bad, fake cinematic German accents, if they're not wearing multiple furs clearly identifiable as, like, the pets of children, you're doing it wrong. I completely agree. 
Well, Fenris isn't here, but their dad, Baron Strucker, is. And while he's mainly awful in that he's a Nazi, one way in- Which is enough. Right. One way in which he's not awful is that he's great at exposition. So he can- I don't know. That's that's an arguable one. Well, it's very useful if you're reading a story, right? Fine. So he tells us that Hitler, in fact, is working with both Lady Windermere and an Egyptian occultist. Who could that be, I wonder? And Strucker's mission is to discredit the ruling house of Windsor so that Britain, which is already unstable since King Edward VIII wanted to marry a divorced American woman named Wallace Simpson, is weak and therefore won't oppose the Nazis in the upcoming World War II. Ah, uh, we'll find out this will also effectively discredit supporters of the House of Windsor, most prominent among them, Winston Churchill. So this is actually a really interesting plot. And, you know, it's something where if it weren't for all of this, like, pouring forth, geysering dialogue, it wouldn't make a lick of sense. But having read this part very, very slowly a couple of times, I'm kind of impressed with these villains. That's clever. Also, it's funny because monarchy is terrible. Monarchy is terrible. Probably not as terrible as Nazis, though. Nazi monarchs, though, those would be the worst. Word. So Kitty can't understand this. And uses this as an opportunity to humble brag that while she doesn't speak German, she is fluent in Japanese, Russian, Imperial, Shi'ar, Galactic trade, and gutter Hebrew. Alistair doesn't ask what a couple of those are because that would make the dialogue even longer. Instead, they watch the bad guys get word from a messenger that intruders have been found, and the bad guys being smart, they bug out of here. Look, I, I don't know what polyglot Scotch pants issue is. I mean, gutter Hebrew is not that weird, even in 36. <laughs> there is that. So, the heroes head out as well, now that the villains have escaped, and find that Lilibet is missing. Apparently, leaving the little girl behind on her own when there are bad guys about is not the best plan. Okay, she had three horses, and those fuckers are savage. Good point, good point. I don't even know where the horses went at this point. That's the most important glaring plot hole in this entire story. Nope. Well, they do manage to threaten an evil butler, in fact, the palooka from before, into saying where Lilibet has been taken, and that is the hard-to-pronounce-correctly Edinburgh. Fortunately, they are characters in a Chris Claremont comic, which means they have access to kick-ass classic aircraft. And they climb into a spitfire and head off, as Alistair conveniently explains the complex politics of 1936 England while they fly. But you know who has no patience for the politics of 1936 England? I will tell you. It is the giant phoenix raptor who grabs the plane out of the sky. And Kitty does manage to phase Alistair herself and the plane loose from the raptor's claws. But needless to say, that's not great for a stable flight plan, and they are about to crash. When we come to issue two which opens again with the near crash. Kitty concludes that the Nazis are somehow forcing Phoenix to attack. So she follows her psychic link back to Rachel and finds none other than, you guessed it, you probably guessed it, you might have guessed it, we guessed it, the Shadow King. Speaking of bad guys, we can't escape in this era of coverage. Right? So we're, we're sort of biding our time before we get to X-Men number one because we want to do that in the holiday special. So we're covering a lot of sort of backups and fill-ins here, and when we just thought this was a conveniently placed one, but no, it's full of the Shadow King. Yup. I gotta say, though, to the Shadow King's credit, maybe it's because it's decades before, but he hasn't yet figured out the idea of making everybody he possesses dress all improbably sexy. So we're gonna find out that this, this story is actually how he learns about the X-Men. He, he picks the knowledge of them out of Rachel's mind at, at one point, and I assume that this may also be where he gets his later M.O., I think it is, yeah, and that's actually explicitly addressed in a little bit. It's kind of clever the way it's handled. Now, 
The Shadow King can't possess Kitty because she is default intangible at this point. That is a bit of canon we've seen before. When she's phasing, she's harder to affect telepathically. Unfortunately, Floppy Hair Handy Pants has no such protection and is an easy target for the Shadow King, who immediately possesses him and uses him to start to crash the plane. Now, Kitty's a smart lady, so she concludes, quite logically, that since the nervous system in the human body is basically electric, she can therefore probably disrupt it by just phasing through somebody's brain. Okay, first of all, this is some really iffy science. Second, though, she does at least specify that she has to do it at the right quote-unquote frequency, whatever that means in this context, so she can just knock her buddy out and kick Farouk out in the process, which seems to me like a kind of iffy proposition. It's sort of a shotgun approach. I mean, it's like your car's alignment's a little off. I know, let me drive it off a cliff to see if that helps. No, it's not. It's like your computer has a virus, let's just unplug it. I'm just saying, unplugging a computer at the wrong time can, can work out very, very poorly. Yes, that's uh, my point. Well, thankfully, it seems to be just fine here because Alistair wakes up and he's okay and Kitty is able to successfully land the plane. Right, this is one of those circumstances in which it would have been catastrophic had she not been a fairly accomplished pilot already, but she is, and in fact, she's more competent than this dude in pretty much every possible area anyway, so I don't really know why Laird's space filler is there to begin with, but whatever. Uh, at the moment, he's here to give a rather concise, accurate, and well-put description of the Shadow King's M.O. It was awful. I was aware of everything that happened. He wanted to kill you. He made me want to kill you. He made me enjoy it. He also seems to have taken all of your apostrophes, Alistair. Yeah, Alistair's dialogue, starting with the second issue, gets a lot more reasonably written, it's true. Well, the two of them fix up the plane, and Alistair explains why he disapproves of Wallace Simpson. Now, we mentioned her previously, but for those of you not abreast of the intrigues of the British royal family, King Edward VIII abdicated in, you guessed it, 1936 to marry American divorcee Wallace Simpson. He was succeeded by his brother, George VI, who in turn was the father of Elizabeth II, who's the one with the corgis, the hats, and the tax scandal, and also the mother of the British royal who produced the next greatest scandal in which he told uh, Camilla Parker Bowles that he wanted to be her tampon sometime in, I think, the 70s. I'd forgotten about that. I think I mainly knew about that through Doonesbury. No, I think you mostly knew about it through the Christopher Moore novel Island of the Sequin Love Nun because there's a whole weird tangent with a bunch of people who don't know about British royals trying to speculate about, you know, the prince who would be a tampon. Well, being a tampon aside... That may be the strangest segue we've ever had. It's really not. It's really, really not. Well, they make it to Edinburgh in their repaired plane, and non-threatening Blanderson gives Kitty a fancy pants circlet that was worn by the Kinross ladies who rode into battle beside their lairds. Now, it is a big deal to give people circlets, and I know that from Beowulf because I was an English major. Legit. So now that they're at Edinburgh, they're headed to Lady Windermere's fancy party, which is at Edinburgh Castle because she's apparently shameless. Alistair is wearing the top half of a tuxedo and he's wearing a kilt and this kilt is sort of pastel aqua and the pattern on it changes real regularly from panel to panel. Sometimes it's just got stripes and sometimes it's totally plain. And in both of those instances, it just looks like he has a bath towel wrapped around his waist. So it was real hard to not just see him and assume that. But the top half of what he's wearing is a white tuxedo, and that in combination with his floppy hair made him look just enough like Billy Campbell in the South Seas Club scene of The Rocketeer for me to get through this, this issue. 
I think this story would have been a lot better if instead of Alistair, we just had Cliff Secord from the Rocketeer. I think the story would have been so much better if it had just straight up been the Rocketeer. <laughs> That's probably true. Honestly, I think that is true of most comics. I haven't gone on a Rocketeer rant in a while. May I briefly digress? <laughs> By all means. The Rocketeer is one of the greatest superhero movies of all time, and I will fight for its honor, and it is beautiful, and it is perfect, and I love it dearly, and it's part of a perfect pair of Jennifer Connelly movies that were really, really, really formative to both my personal aesthetics and probably my sexual orientation. But that aside... Oh, and also Cliff Secord is my personal fashion icon. And also my my sewing machine, which is currently in someone else's custody, but it's awesome. And it's model name. It's um it's a singer slantomatic rocketeer. Like it was actually named that. And its name is PV after the mechanic from the Rocketeer. Nice. Anyway, it's a really great movie and it's really good. And um you should all watch it. X-Men's good too, but nothing is as good as the Rocketeer. The comic's okay too. Well, in an X-Men comic, uh, namely this one. Lady Wintermere shows up and uh, spirits Laird Manthrob off to attempt to get him to join her in some sedition. Okay, she may be evil, but she is styling as hell. And she's wearing one of those rad, rad, like, 20s and 30s formal wear outfits that basically looks like real posh pajamas. I gotta say, we should really give Rick Leonardi some love for the fashion in this story. Oh my god, I know! Like, the inking and the colors, yeah, they're inconsistent, but everybody's really awesomely dressed. Leonardi was always very good at that, and that's rare in comics, to have characters that don't just look good in their superhero costumes, but actually dress like real people, where the clothing can tell you a bit about what's going on in the scene as much as the dialogue. I gotta say, though, this is another area where I feel justified in describing Leonardi as poor man's Alan Davis because he's brilliant at it, but he's not quite that brilliant at it. True, true, true. Now, with her buddy boy off with Lady Windermere, Kitty is left to sass the pants off Geist, who, as you may recall, was Strucker's Nazi sidekick. Kitty knows how to stay mostly subtle in this, not saying, by the way, I'm a Jewish superhero, but the bitter fury that comes through in her dialogue and body language is just right below the surface, and that comes across so well here. This is the Kitty Pride we know and love, who's kind of hot-headed and very passionate, and smart enough to know when to keep it under wraps, but passionate enough to not fully, fully be able to. In contrast, the rest of the guests are doing roughly what upper-class 1930s British people did, which is being Nazi sympathizers. It's true. So Kitty manages to lose her Nazi escort by phasing through a bathroom wall. She goes in search of Rachel and Lilibet. I would like to pretend, by the way, I, I decided that Timothy Dalton was at this party. That seems reasonable. I feel like he would be. It seems entirely reasonable. Entirely, entirely story reasonable. So we don't see him, but Kitty phases off and she finds Rachel and Lilibet in large trunks, where she goes to free them, only to be ambushed by the Shadow King, but it's cool she gets away because of phasing. The Shadow King, however, does order his underlings that the trunks be destroyed at the first sign of further interference or pursuit. And then we cut to my favorite panel in the entire miniseries. It says Lady Windermere, in her fancy purple pajamas, posing jauntily in the middle of a fucking blood pentagram. To explain to Biff Blandkilt, whose kilt has changed once again to plain stripes and so looks like a towel, that her necromancer is going to summon some dead monarchs to tell them whether the Windsor line is legitimate. That's her plan. Okay. That's what's going on. I have some issues with this comic, but this is not one of them. If you're going to be a villain, you could do a hell of a lot worse than having an evil wizard summon ghosts to tell you if a monarch is legitimate, and if she's not, you can destabilize the monarchy, and if she is, your wizard's going to take her over so you can take over the monarchy. 
that is some A-plus villainy right there. Like, I don't like Nazis, obviously, at all. The Shadow King's a jerk, but Lady Windermere, I really have to respect what she's doing here. Also, she's posing like fucking Vanna White in the middle of a blood pentagram, and it's amazing. I really feel like if you're going to distill X-Men gal pals down to just one panel, this is probably it right there. Now, she is convinced that Lord Blanderson is going to be all about this. Shadow King, however, begs to disagree and informs her that, in fact, Pantsless McHare Swoop is never going to betray his country and so will inevitably betray her. But it turns out that's cool because they can use him for a blood sacrifice. Right, because he's got a little bit of royalty to him. So, you know, good enough. Royal blood, it's, it's just better than ours, I guess. Or at least demons like it more. Does that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. I mean, for all we know, demons are like bros who drink Jaeger bombs. <laughs> That's surprisingly easy to picture, actually. All right, pop your collar, Satan. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and say pop your collar, Satan, is the new get thee behind me, Satan. I feel just fine about that. At this point, I want to say I am really uncomfortable with how hard this comic is working to establish Strucker as the cool and somewhat honorable Nazi. Like, he's a fucking Nazi. You really don't need to take it further than that. I don't care that he's all about honorable combat and he thinks that, like, blood magic is cheating. Because, first of all, it's Baron Strucker. Nothing's fucking cheating. This this asshole will do literally anything. But, second, he's still a Nazi. It's true. Everyone here is a bad guy, except for our boring male protagonist, and also Kitty. No, he's just a guy. So Kitty manages to phase that guy, Peril McSacrifice, out of the way just in time. So he is not, in fact, blood sacrificed. And Shadow King trips and breaks his fancy ceremonial dagger, which sounds like something you'd just be smug about, but actually turns out to be a really big deal. So he sucks out the souls of all the Nazis that are present, just like Forge did back in Vietnam. Well, not just like, but kind of like. And that's the end of Lady Windermere's fan club. You were waiting for that one, weren't you? I absolutely was. I have been waiting for several days to deliver that line. I have been hoarding it like smog in his cave. (laughs) You have a horde of Oscar Wilde references? I actually fully believe that. Just that one. Okay, a horde of Oscar Wilde reference. Actually, that's not true. I have I have several, several choice one-liners about the Society for the Suppression of Virtue, but those aren't really germane to this episode. So. Well, the Shadow King isn't content to suck out the souls of a bunch of Nazis. He kills Lady Windermere, too, because he still needs some royal blood. Well, and obviously, you know, Pencil's McHare Swoop is intangible at the moment, so she's the next closest source. Her name is also Regina, so you can tell she's extra royal which naming trick is also used on the, the most accurate modern representation of, of British monarchy uh, once upon a time. I've seen one episode of that, so I feel qualified to agree. It is actually not an accurate representation of anything whatsoever. Anything. Sure it is. No. Nope. It's got color-coded princes and flying monkeys. What more do you need? Okay, so I was also on the same podcast, and in the episode I saw, someone did rip the heart out of a unicorn, which I really appreciated. But in general, that show is fucking ridiculous. Now let's go back to talking about Nazis' time travel and blood magic. <laughs> Indeed. So, Kitty and Abs McDazed escape. The Shadow King alerts the drivers of the truck they've escaped into, however. But the drivers are sensible folks. They decide that they can't just kill random people in the middle of the city. They would get hanged for that. So they go to responsibly murder them outside of this urban area. 
After a brief and vaguely catastrophic Donnybrook, Kitty is knocked unconscious into the water and Alistair dives after her, but is unable to rescue her. Fortunately for both of them, Wolverine's on the case. That's right. We can't escape Nazis, we can't escape the Shadow King, and we can't escape Wolverine. Okay, to be fair, there is a passage in Marvel's um, Universe Bible saying that if you do a World War II story, you have to retcon Wolverine into it. But this is interesting because at this point in 1991 when it was written, this was one of the earlier times we'd seen Wolverine. We'd seen him in the World War II era with Captain America before. But as far as 36, I don't know, this is one of the only times. So a couple things about that. One, the reason Alistair couldn't rescue Kitty from drowning is because Kitty was unconscious and is default phased at this point in continuity. Wolverine could. What's up with that? So the answer is itself a continuity error. Because adamantium messes with Kitty's phasing. And we also see Wolverine's got metal claws in the scenes he appears in. That's clearer in the third issue than it is in the second issue. However, Wolverine shouldn't have had an adamantium skeleton at this point. Right, they should have just been bone claws and a normal bone skeleton. Because this is well before Weapon X infused him with adamantium. Which means, in the parlance of the day, someone made a boner. (laughs) Someone did indeed. I should say, we, we, all, we all learned the slang use of this term from um, a, a, a Batman comic called, I believe, The Joker's Boner, in which they just fucking keep saying it. They totally do. Now, the colorist of this story seems to have attempted to rectify this boner by coloring Wolverine's claws a sort of tan color, thus implying that maybe they would be bone. But keep in mind, this story was written way before the retcon, where we found that Wolverine had bone claws, but published way after it. So... I don't know. I'll cut him some slack, I think. I don't think making something flesh-colored rectifies anything about a boner. So Wolverine goes to fight some Nazis, leaving Kitty and Alistair to make out under a dock, after which Wolverine takes them back to his car. Wolverine, I assume his memory's shot to hell at this point. He's a secret agent. He's used to random people recognizing him and knowing what we, what he can do and sort of taking it with a grain of salt. And obviously these guys are at least the enemies of the Nazis, so his temporary friends. So he feels fine about explaining to them why he happened to be there. Some people I work with called in a marker, said there'd be trouble, young folks needin' help, Nazis needin' to be taught a lesson. Last part was the clincher. I'm a sucker for thumping Nazis. Man, I have never liked Wolverine more. I have never liked Logan more. I have definitely liked Wolverine more, like in every, every time she's Laura, but... And Kitty takes some inspiration because she decides to do what any sensible superhuman from the future would do in 1936. I've got a gun and a time machine. Let's kill Hitler. So, X-Men Gal Pals. It's a very mixed story, but I think one of the things that it really does struggle with is just trying to have too much going on. Like, the destabilizing the British monarchy thing, the time travel thing, the Shadow King thing, the murdering Hitler thing. Like, that feels like the plot's for about three separate stories, not one. Incorrect. This is Excalibur. It's not that it has too much going on, it's that it has either too much or too little going on. Because take that mess you've got and add in a few more components, like, say, the crazy gang, and Brian Braddock with amnesia. And I'm I'm, I'm pulling random things out here, by the way. I'm not referring to anything specific. But, like, throw a handful more things in, give it to Alan Davis, and you've actually got a pretty solid mid-season Excalibur story. That is perhaps a valid point. Because, I mean, this is, this is an era and this is a title that thrives on, on slapstick chaos. But this has just enough going on that it it feels full and it doesn't have quite enough going on to hit that level of cacophony. 
Well, adding a bit to the cacophony is the Astral Plane, where Rachel is fighting hard against the Shadow King. But he points out, she's still young, even if the Phoenix Force isn't, and he starts to take her over. She escapes to the X-Mansion. With the X-Men, she's safe. No, it's just her memory, and Shadow King rifles through that, and he gets from Rachel. What does he get that's going to be major plot points? He gets the X-Men. He gets the concept of hounds. Like, shit, Rachel is basically spelling out all of her own doom here. He even meets Charles Xavier and talks about how he's going to be interested in corrupting this man if he ever meets him. This is actually kind of brilliant. This is one clean scene to organize a great deal of unresolved plot. And the stark inks and black backgrounds of this scene, it works. It's just brutal. It's methodical. It's the Shadow King going down his list of terrible goals that he's now learning from the heroes. Meanwhile, Kitty is doing probably the saddest thing we've seen her do in this series, aside from not grab and kiss Rachel in the beginning in the bar scene, which is, actually, no, this is this is sadder, sorry. Um, I'm being flippant. Which is trying to track down and phone and warn her relatives in Poland in 1936 with no success. The ones that she knows are destined to die in the Holocaust. This is heavy. Even if I got through, what would I say? How could I make them believe to my generation, this is history, and too many people think it's a lie. And thus, why Kitty Pride is going to kill Hitler and all the Nazi leaders from the top down. Okay, would you not read Kitty Pride, Trine Traveling Nazi Hunter, the comic? God, I totally would. I mean, we enjoyed Kitty Pride Vampire Hunter a great deal back in the day. Especially if she and Magneto teamed up. I feel pretty good about this, actually, yeah. It would be so good. Marvel, call me. Alistair tries to dissuade her, tries to dissuade her from becoming a murderer, but she is resolute, she is adamant, she's going to do it. And some other heroes are having a conversation about the same topic, namely Logan, and also some characters we haven't seen yet in this story. You've got a young Irene Adler and her partner, a well-dressed, quote-unquote, Mr. Raven. See, again, this comic is so queer and so straight at the same time, and I don't know how to handle it. This is kind of cool, I think. I mean, for one thing, it's cool to see Destiny back in the day when she was younger. I've always loved Destiny. Yes, well, and Destiny and Mystique. Exactly. And this is interesting here because Chris Claremont in interviews has talked about how he'd pondered the idea of having Mystique being male when she was younger, and so that's what we're seeing right here. Whether it's how Mystique was identifying at the time, or whether it was a disguise for a specific purpose, it's a really interesting gender-fluid take on the character. Yeah, this is this is something that, again, I really wish got explored in more depth, because it's really cool. But also, it's one of those, there's so much queerness roiling beneath the surface of this comic, and it's... Uh, I know, right? But Destiny is concerned. Destiny is really the one person who's positioned to actually see the implications of what Kitty's planning here. Um, and she she basically says, you know, we can't let her do this, but it's a choice she has to make on her own because we can't know what the consequences are. So it's basically all on Kitty. And what Kitty has done is what Kitty Pride does in times of great moral crisis, which is redesign her costume. But this time she's done a really good job. And I don't know. Yeah, again, this is unprecedented. Take a drink, but like take a minute to make yourself a really good drink. You know, use the good scotch, take a sip, really enjoy that sip because holy shit, Kitty's costume is so good. 
It is. It's like a really intimidating 1930s sort of military version of her traditional Shadowcat costume. No, it's like Rocketeer Kitty. It's pretty great. It's so good. Like, I don't know why she doesn't just keep this costume because it is fantastic. I have never expected myself to utter the phrase, the khaki pants make it work, but damn, the khaki pants make it work. Well, Kitty doesn't have a chance to begin her Nazi murdering rampage because she gets a psychic flash from Rachel Summers that Lilibet is free. Lilibet has escaped. So that is the new step one. All right. Lilibet, for her part, has escaped her house arrest prison. She's climbed out of a window and she's headed to the house of an old family friend, Mr. Carmody. Unfortunately, she can't outrun the Shadow King possessed Phoenix, who shows up, stops her, and then immediately possesses Lilibet as well. The Shadow King himself is in a nearby car with Strucker and Geist, talking about his plans to frame Kitty for all of the mess that's going on, thus further destabilize Britain. He mentions that Lilibet is royalty, and part of this plot involves making her dad too sad to accept the forthcoming crown. Thus, this starts to fill itself in. But there's not much time to reflect on this, because Wolverine shows up to do what he does best, fight a car. He manages to take out Geist, but Farouk and Strucker run the hell away. Kitty prepares to head in after them to begin her Nazi murder spree, and also rescue her friends. Second string Secord shows up to ask if changing history might erase her. She says, if it does, she's okay with that. My folks, my friends, and Loken most of all, though he doesn't know it yet, made me what I am. I have to be true to that person and to my conscience. The future will have to look after itself. I feel that if I let you go, I'll lose you forever. Considering what's at stake, is a pair of broken hearts so high a price? Seriously, Alistair, get over yourself. You know, this story's a mess in a lot of ways, but so many parts of it do just work. This was Claremont in the early 90s when the script was originally written, when he was still very much at his height, and I'm into this. I mean, Alistair may not be the most exciting love interest, but the characters are just written as so human, so believable. The thing is, like... It's still weird to me that he's not built as Mara's dad. Yeah, I mean, that may just be one of those things that ended up on the cutting room floor. This was a story that was written over the course of 10 years, so maybe we lost that part. Who knows? That's a lot of time to do your research. <laughs> there is that. But inside, Wolverine is in the process of taking out a bunch of guards. The thing he does second best when he's attacked by the possessed Rachel Summers, Lilibet escapes this scuffle and suddenly finds herself dressed in traditional Highlands garb. But wait a minute, this isn't what evil sexy Moira was wearing during the Muir Island saga? Miles, Miles, Lilibet is pretty young. We try not to sexualize her. Well, okay, fair, but still, where's the bandolier? Where's the big furry hat? Where's the claymore? I'm just saying, I have been given to understand that traditional Scottish garb includes a great deal of excess, and we're not seeing that here. Especially when possessed by the Shadow King. Valid point. Seriously. Well, Lilibet and her awesome but not that awesome new outfit finds herself in a treasure chamber where the Shadow King himself appears and quickly takes out Kitty Pride when she comes to the rescue. Now, what we find out is that Lilibet has ended up in this secret treasure chamber full of the ancient treasures of Scotland that only the true heir to the Highland throne can wield because anyone else who tries to will be instantly killed because this is some Indiana Jones-style silliness happening. It is. And on the one hand, I'm pretty sure Chris Claremont's just making this part up. I Listeners correct us if we're wrong, but I'm okay with that. You mean there's not really a secret basement full of swords you can't touch unless you're Queen Elizabeth II? 
Well, I meant the part where that's an actual Scottish mythology, but either way, I'm totally into it. And there's a great big fight. Wolverine shows up, everybody starts cutting everybody, and Lilibet, who's holding the Sword of Scone and is now herself possessed, but like— Wait, the Sword of Scone? That's what it's called. That's delicious. <laughs> Isn't it? But Lilibet's now possessed by uh, good forces, like the Monarchy of the British Isles-style mystical forces. Let's just go with it. Let's not worry about it. And she knights Kitty as a champion of the realm and gives her the sword to use in this grand melee. And Phoenix now free cuts loose and we get some grand narration. Before tonight, Kitty Pride never saw the Phoenix in all its glory. She knew Jean Grey, of course, Rachel's mother and the original avatar of this primal celestial force. But in those days, as impressive as she was, Jean manifested only a small portion of her potential. And Rachel, after she inherited the mantle, was always gun-shy. Too respectful of her mother's legacy, too fearful of the terrible risk of losing control. Now, as the boundaries of reality itself are rent asunder, she finds herself witness to the kinds of forces that can reshape creation, or at least the British monarchy. And Kitty realizes that if Rachel lets loose enough to kill the Shadow King, she's going to become just as fucked up and dark and omnipotent as she is. And she says so. She tells her friend what she's worried about. And Kitty, who has learned at the knee of Wolverine, decides that the thing to do when Rachel Summers is in danger of killing someone is to stab her. Yeah, Rachel tells her that that's the only way, and Kitty goes for it. She cuts the two of them in half with the Sword of Scone. But thankfully, the sword just renders both combatants corporeal. Delicious! And also delicious. And Kitty connects with Rachel despite the searing pain of touching this grand psychic force, and they zap fire out of the sword and incinerate the crap out of the Shadow King. Wait! I know I was frustrated this whole story, but this moment has given me hope again. This is the second time we have seen Nazis defeated with intense Phoenix Force-enabled queerness. You're totally right. It's just like when the Phoenix Force shot rainbows into Hitler that one time. Did you hear the sentence that just came out of your mouth? Sometimes I really love being an X-Men podcaster. It's good work. Someone's got to do it. And with that, Kitty and Rachel wake up, and they find themselves in the present day at the opening of the new Scots Parliament— Logan's there, Brigadier Allison Stewart of the Weird Happenings Organization is there. And so is Lilibet, who has grown up into the eternally glowering and corgi-accompanied, although not in this comic for some reason. Why wouldn't you draw the corgis, Leonardi? Come on, always include the corgis. Queen Elizabeth II. Right, so that's a thing. All that foreshadowing was, in fact, leading to this. Lilibet was the in-hiding, uh, eventual heir to the British throne the entire time. And Queen Elizabeth is really happy to see Kitty and Rachel. That's one of the things I liked about this story. It's not the whole thing where history kind of resets itself and nobody remembers anything. She totally remembers the time that the phasing girl and the psychic girl helped her fight Nazi Egyptian time-traveling telepaths. Unfortunately, she also remembers that Phil and McMahon Candy died in World War II, but he died heroically, so it's rad. And, you know, he did at least leave Kitty this rad crown, so fair trade. But she says... I'd rather have the man... Even old. Even just for a day. And the queen basically says, YOLO, peace out, and heads inside. <laughs> YOLO, Queen Elizabeth II. It's kind of a bittersweet ending. I mean, 
the character of Alistair was never really fleshed out enough for, for me to feel like I knew who he was. But Kitty's feelings for him, I did believe. Kitty Pride is one of the characters that Chris Claremont wrote best. I think she's one of the characters whose voice he just had down more than any others. And so hearing Kitty talk about how she felt about Alistair, just seeing her, knowing what we do about her history, knowing how that all channels into this romance, I kind of bought it. What about you, Jay? I appreciated his fancy hair and hypercolor kilt. <laughs> well, at least that's something. So the queen puts aside her stately duties for a few minutes in favor of friendship, and the series ends with a pretty nice panel of her holding Kitty and Rachel's hands, and above them, images floating of the three of them, but back then, along with Alistair. And it's nice, and it's sweet, and I guess that's where the subtitle of Gal Pals, I mean, True Friends, comes from. Wait, so the queen is also one of the eponymous Gal Pals? You heard it here first, listeners. Queen Elizabeth II, Kitty Pride, and Rachel Summers. Gal pals forever. And with that, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Hi, I've been thinking about the Dark Phoenix saga and how a lot of its themes are dependent, at least from my perspective, on the idea that women with power and agency are bad. Since it's still an incredibly well-told story, I'd like to know if you have any other personal interpretations of the story that aren't rooted in that sexist idea. Yeah, absolutely. So, first of all, anonymous, what... I think you need to look at when you're looking at the Dark Phoenix saga is that it's not women's power and agency are, that are bad, but that efforts to and attempts to manipulate and suppress those things will backfire. It's not Jean or the Phoenix's power and agency that make things go bad. It's the fact that it's the Phoenix ending up manifested in the form of this, this person who everyone has always second-guessed and treated as less than compared to her teammates, when, you know, the Phoenix Force shows up, it's immediately again further second-guessed and suppressed. That's even more the case in the movie chronology, I gotta say, but it's definitely consistent of the comics as well. And I see a lot of the Dark Phoenix stuff as the equivalent of, like, rubber band snapback. When you push something really hard in one direction, it'll snap back too far in the other. So it's not that Jean has power. It's that she has been consistently manipulated and constrained by unscrupulous and well-meaning, if paternalistic men in her life, so that when she does finally break free, she's got so much momentum that she just burns everything in her path. And I think it's important to remember that Dark Phoenix's emergence comes directly from Mastermind's manipulation and meddling. Oh, yeah, word. Yeah, and it's only Jean's inherent humanity that can get past that trauma at the end. So you could make an argument that it's Jean's agency being basically suppressed and traumatized by an abusive patriarchy that causes the whole damn problem. And once that agency comes back, things are a little more okay. I mean, not, you know, totally okay because she does die, depending on which version of continuity you're looking at, but still more okay. So I disagree with one point, which is fundamentally separating Jean and the Phoenix in that description, because you could look at what you said and still make the case that women with absolute power are treated as the problem. But that said, I do agree that the that Dark Phoenix comes from Masterminds meddling is important because, again, consent and agency are huge aspects of that. Dark Phoenix is a product not of Jean's agency, but of its suppression. So with that, Death Defying Life Leaps asks, also on Tumblr, is there ever any discussion as to why mutants end up with their specific mutations? Some are obviously hereditary, Magneto and Polaris, while others seem random, Magneto and Wanda and Pietro, but maybe the Maximoffs aren't the best family for this question. Correct. Never look for patterns in that family. And what about mutant kids of human parents? Blame Sinister? So that's a really good question. 
I don't really know of any logic as to why certain powers uh, manifest and certain ones don't. I mean, we do know that in Earth-616, mutancy seems to be a combination of ages-old tinkering by the Celestials, or Apocalypse, if you believe X-Factor Forever, and ill-defined atomic age environmental effects. The most consistent rule for this, and it's one that's, that's a meta-narrative rule, is that mutations follow the plot. They are more than a product of genetics, a product of the sensibilities of whichever writer is handling the title. So you'll get ones that are linked in family groups when someone's thinking about it, or ones that are thrown in because they need someone with that power set who's later retconned to be a relative of mutants with unrelated powers, or because the, the ones that I think are the most ridiculous because they connect to a character's name or to some artifact they happen to have some kind of ancestral or, or personal connection to. Yeah, and as far as the heredity thing, if you're trying to look at it in-universe, that does seem to play a part, but not a huge part. So it's kind of like how you're more likely to be left-handed if your parents are, but it's not a sure thing. You're more likely to have... Case in point, I am the right-handed kid of two left-handed parents. Exactly. I kind of like that powers are mostly random, the occasional genetic link aside. I mean, that's how mutation works in nature. Sometimes you have sea life crawling onto land, ushering in a new era of existence. Other times you have the giant panda. And sometimes you have a guy named Richter who can start earthquakes. <laughs> that too. So Jane Miles explained the X-Men is an entirely listener-supported podcast, and one of the things that comes with support at certain levels is on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. Once again, let's turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Ah, uh, Tuck. So optimistic, so foolhardy. Assuming that you need just change a few random variables to alter the entire course of history. You may assassinate Ross Siegel. You may even stop a war. But compared to the forces of compulsory heterosexuality, you are little more than one pebble in a mighty ocean. Speaking of forces of at least some sort, I believe the mic from here goes to Sexy Nightcrawler. Unglaublich! I am overjoyed my dear friend Kitty has found love, time lost or not. Alistair doubtless has the heart of a hero, but still, where is the wit, the bravado, the mischievous romance of a swashbuckler true? Why, the suave and debonair Jonah McCarty is right there! The fiercely charismatic Jeffrey Nils Gardner awaits! Kostyan, your choices are your own. But consider the spice and excitement the world contains. Or just consider Rachel Summers. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode and more. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Logan does what he does best on a quest for his own past. 